Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialise in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. You're tuning into Cancer Culture, a podcast all about cancer. My name is Jackie Cowan and I'm an ex-cancer patient and also your host. I'm on a mission to let cancer patients and people affected by cancer know that they are not alone. Throughout this episode and the course of the podcast, you'll hear stories from people who are currently enduring cancer, lost loved ones to cancer, or whose lives have permanently been scarred and changed by cancer. This podcast can be both insightful and sad, so please strap in as it's one for the brave. I'm most definitely not a medical practitioner, however, a survivor of an illness who wishes to bring individuals together through hope, genuine human interaction and storytelling. You're listening to another episode of Cancer Culture. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, someone who I've known for, I want to say, maybe 15 plus years now. What do you reckon? Mm, at least, I think. Yeah. At least, maybe, yeah. minimum. My favourite guest at my parties. <laughs> Woohoo! It is a dear friend of mine, Ben. How are you, Ben? Well, thanks, Jackie. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually good. I'm glad to be here. Me too. Talk the talk, have a yarn about cancer, something that we've both been affected by. Almost a year and a half ago, I want to say, Ben came to me to ask for a few opinions on the matter and maybe just a yarn to put yourself at ease. But at that point, you'd been diagnosed with cancer, right? What kind of cancer was that? It was a nasopharyngeal carcinoma, a squamous cell carcinoma. But then when the primary was found in my nasopharynx, it was classified as a nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Had you ever heard of that in your life? No. Mm. No. I had no idea that a skin cancer could start, form up in your nasal cavity. I just didn't have, I wasn't educated at all about it. No idea. Can you say it one more time? A nasopharyngeal carcinoma. All right, I'm going to need you to spell that out for me. I'm actually going to see the oncologist tomorrow. Oh, okay. I had an MRI on Friday. For the first two years post-radiation, I get quarterly MRIs and oncology checks. So the MRI was Friday and every one of them I've had, they've said is all good and fine and great. And then the oncologist, different oncologists every time I've gone to see them, but they camera up the nose, have a quick look, ask me all the questions, check my weight, check all that stuff. How are you feeling? How are the symptoms, side effects? I remember just before you went into treatment, we hung out. Do you remember that night? That's right. That's You came over for dinner. Had I started chemo then? No. no. Wow. And me and Alex had a few bevies. That's right. I think I did too, didn't <laughs> yeah, I? Yeah, That's right. Yeah, your, da- your dad dropped you off and picked you up. It's funny because I can still remember I started chemo on the mon- on a Monday and the Sunday night we watched the Aladdin movie as mm-hmm. a family together. Like Alex, the kids, and I watched the Will Smith Aladdin, not the old cartoon one. And I can still remember sitting there and when you're watching a movie and you're watching it, but you're not really watching it. It's going in, but there's just something always 
in the back of your mind thinking it was just awful. I just remember sitting there going, I'm watching this movie and I'm trying to get into it, but I just thought I just can't relax. It was just... Bloody Aladdin. Yeah, Aladdin. <laughs> That's always going to stick in my mind. Have you watched it since? No, I haven't. But even thinking about the movie and just thinking about the Aladdin story, I think that I've got the association with that's the day before I started chemo. How weird. I actually, there's a Flow Rider song mm. and I was at home from school because I wasn't allowed to go to school. It was the day that I was receiving this diagnosis and mum and dad were in the study and they got the phone call and then we, Emily and I were sitting and we were just listening to Flow Rider, for God's sake. And then we all found out and Emmy and I just sat there and she was really sad and I wasn't. But now every time I hear that song, it's a happy memory now. Yeah. Obviously that yeah. time was shit. But if I listen to that song, I associate with that. And I'm like, weird. I'll never, ever forget that. Mm. It's funny how those little things just stick with you then and it's just there. Just done. What date were you diagnosed? It was in late April. A year and a half ago? Because it was, I remember it was not quite a calendar month from me noticing the lump to starting chemo. The Monday morning I started chemo was like three and a half weeks from noticing the lump. You're good, right? Still getting... You still get used to stuff. Like, I still can't eat certain things that I could eat before and my appetite's not the same as what it was before and all those little things. But you just, in time, as the weeks and months and now years ticked over, you just get used to it. Baby steps. And I think it doesn't worry me. I mean, certain pastas and breads, like the heavy carbohydrates, I can't eat anymore. I can, but it's just guzzling water with them while I'm eating. You don't really enjoy it. And it's sort of, yeah, but it's, but it, it was funny at the start when I first started catching up and seeing people with eating because I used to, well, I still do. I, I ate very slowly and you have to take small mouthfuls. And those first six months with my throat afterwards, I just had to be really careful about swallowing and everything. It was almost like you're just learning to almost eat again because you sometimes I'd eat and go to swallow and it wouldn't go down the right way and get a bit dry and horrible in your throat. So it's just you just got to learn to know your limits, what you can and can't do anymore. Mm. No more sangers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, but it's actually probably good because I can, but it's got to be like nice, fresh, soft bread, not old, not crusty sort of bread and stuff, like anything like that. I can still do, but as long as it's there to mop up some other food with some liquid and that stuff, like it's not just, here's a piece of old crusty bread to eat, Ben. I'll just go, no, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Because I, I just can't eat it. It just gets stuck in my throat and the working of the saliva to make it go down is just too hard. You've got a valid reason now to be a proper bougie eater. No mm. excuses. No, I don't want your crusty old bread. Yeah, give me that fresh, soft stuff. So tell me, where did this start? I was. I came home for lunch one day. I've always had a bit of a rugged facial hair thing going on. And I've got the physique of a very solid neck, as my wife always says. I've got the rugby player neck. And I came home for lunch one day, and just when I was washing my hands in the bathroom, I just looked at my neck, and I thought, my face and neck is always two-week growth going on. And I thought, is that side of my neck a little bit sticking out a bit more? The tendons in my neck, and is there some swelling there? And my wife, who's a nurse was home at the time and I went and showed her and I just lifted my, my, my chin up, my face up and I said, oh, Alex, I said, is there, does my neck look swollen there to you? And her reaction, I think, straight away, it didn't startle me, but she was quite, your lymph nodes are swollen. She said, are they sore? 
And I said, no, there's no pain. And I felt them and she felt them. And she went, oh, your lymph nodes are quite swollen. She said, you need to go to a doctor straight away. That was at about lunchtime early afternoon of, I think, a Wednesday or maybe a Tuesday. Actually, I think it was a Tuesday. And I said, look, I can't today, like right now, I've got something I've got to do work-wise. I will, it will. And she said, I'm booking it now for you tomorrow. So the next following day, the Wednesday, I went straight to my GP at Nunda. He took one look at it, asked me to hold up a ruler next to my neck. And with his iPad, he took a photo. And he's, he was concerned, but he didn't give me any reason to panic or I wasn't feeling any anything at the time about anything bad. And he said, look, you will need blood straight away and a scan straight away. And I went, and I said, if I can't get in today, and before I could finish the sentence, he said, no, today, you need your bloods and your scan today. So I went straight across the road and got my bloods done at the pathology at Nunda. The scan placed there at Nunda couldn't fit me in for the day. They said, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I've come straight from the referring GP. And they said, look, we'll try and get you in out at our Sandgate office. And then they said, we can get you in out there this afternoon. So I said, I'm straight out there. I had my scan done. I still remember talking to the lady that did the scan for me and she asked what I did. And she was talking about a vehicle her husband, I think, was trying to sell or something like that, something about a car. And I'm lying there while she's scanning away at my neck. And then when, and I know they, they never qualified and they never want to give you any answers of any questions because they're not medically trained or, and I remember just saying to her, I asked her, I said, is there anything there? Can you see anything there? Or, and she said, look, you do need to see your doctor. But she was quite, she didn't give it to me in a way that made me feel any anxiety about it. But I still remember to this day exactly how she said it. And anyway, so that was on the Thursday Sorry, that was the Wednesday, the day after I noticed the lump. The next day, my GP rang me on the Thursday. He said, I've made an appointment for you with a specialist. He said, it's not in my area of expertise. And I said, I got to my wife and I do about an appointment there. And he said, look, no, you don't make the appointment. I've contacted them. They'll contact you and get an appointment. And that was for Icon Cancer Centre at the MARTA. So then I said to Alex, I said, why am I going to a cancer clinic? And she said, oh, look, it's just going through the process. She said she was trying to give me her medical takedown of they've got to eliminate everything that they think it's not. So mm-hmm. get anything they think it might be there, get rid of that idea that it's not that. Move on to this. It could be this. It's definitely not that. That was on the Thursday. And the Icon Cancer contacted me that afternoon. And they said, look, you can come in on the Monday, come up in four days. And that was the May Day long weekend of last year. And I said, oh, but it's a public holiday. And she said, oh, no, we're still open. So anyway, I remember that was a very, those four days, I still had in my mind it was nothing. I still thought, I've got a lump there. Why am I going to a cancer clinic? for a, It was just, it wasn't quite real then. So May Day Monday, he asked me the questions, are you having night sweats? Are you losing weight unexpectedly? Nothing, I had no symptoms or side effect of any kind. I felt fine. I felt good. I felt as good as I'd ever felt. It was just the swollen lymph node in my neck. And he been prodded in the lymph nodes under the arms and my groin and my stomach and had a bit of a look. And he put it down. He said, look, my best guess is we're looking at non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He said a biopsy is the next step. He said, we need to get a biopsy. We'll know for sure what we're dealing with. He did say something at the time, which Alex picked up on that I didn't really get. That's what I always took 
my nurse wife to every appointment because medically she's just honed in on every word they're saying. She could understand everything. And a lot of times I was just too nervous and anxious to really listen. But he, the one, one thing he did say was it could be is a carcinoma, a squamous cell carcinoma, an SCC. But he said, we hope it's not that because this is his area of expertise, the lymphs. And so that was on the Monday. 48 hours later on the Wednesday, I went to Red Radiology and I had my biopsy of the lymph in my neck, which if anyone's had, it's not nice, but it's not no. totally unpleasant anesthetic in the neck. They take the samples out and have a look at them there in the room. It was quite yucky getting all of that done. But And then they take a, a core sample where they had to take a little piece from the lymph there to have a look at it. That was on the Wednesday. I remember that Wednesday to the Friday when I was waiting for the results back was probably the worst 48 hours of the not knowing, the what is it, what could it be. I remember leaving Icon on the Monday and I said to Alex, I said, what's this and what's that and what's non-Hodgkin's? And Alex said, look, he thinks you may have non-Hodgkin's. That's cancer of the lymph, like you've got a cancer. And I was a bit, oh, and it was still, it still hadn't really sunk in at that stage. But again, it was the biopsy was the definitive, this will tell us what we're dealing with. Let's not jump to anything till the biopsy. And I think he said he'd contact us between five and seven o'clock. So anyway, Alex and I were out on the back deck. I was having a few scotches. I was pacing up and down the deck from five o'clock. I think he eventually the call came through at about 10 to 7. Oh, no. I was pacing up and down, walking individually the boards of the decking at the back, drinking Johnny Walker till I nearly came out of my ears. <laughs> and then the phone rang, and it was a local landline. And straight out, he just said, oh, Ben, he said, you've got a skin cancer. You've got an SCC, a squamous cell carcinoma. And then I was just blank. I, I just didn't know what to say. And then Alex said, oh, isn't that what you said we didn't want? You didn't want that to be the result. And he said, well, no. He said that more along the lines, he said, that's not my expertise. He said, I don't, that's not my area. He said, I'll have to refer you now to an ENT, to an ear, nose, throat surgeon who will talk to you from here. But also at the same time, he said to me, he said, Ben, look, this isn't fair. On the Friday, he told me about the squat and he said, from here, you need to get a PET scan. So from there was a PET scan which was, I think, the following week. And the PET scan was done. Again, I think had a couple of other nervous days following that. And I got to report on that. And he said that there was some some area of my prostate was also, yeah, it was showing signs. There was inflammation. There was something there in the prostate, in the, in, in the PET. Was, so then he said, oh, we'll have to refer you to a urologist for the prostate. And I'll refer you to an ENT for your neck. And I went, thanks, thanks for your help. So then it was like, oh my God, where do we go from here? So then I was facing that. Then it was getting the ENT. I since found out he's apparently amazing. He's, um, he's head of throat surgery at the PA. And just if you're going to have somebody looking at that area for you, he's the one to have. I got an appointment to see him that was... Again, I remember that because he had, he took, he had a bit of a look at my, up my nose and stuff like that with a camera. And he actually took a little biopsy cutting up my nose again, just to get everything all organized. And I had to have a PET scan done and that had revealed the prostate issue as well. But he saw from the PET scan that the primary cancer was in my nasopharynx 
So he then said, oh, we've got the primary and it has spread to your lymph node. He said, from here, you're looking at chemotherapy and radiation. Alex asked the question. She said, well, Ben have to have the lymphs removed. Will there be surgery as well? And he said, no, I'm 95% sure the chemo and radiation will do the job. He picked up the phone and he spoke to one of his other oncologists or consultants over there. And he said, look, how many have you got in today's group? Can you squeeze one more in? I'm sending over somebody. His name's Benjamin Lyons, blah, 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 date of birth. He got off the phone. This is at nine o'clock in the morning. He said, you're going out to meet your oncology team. And as he's telling me all this and trying to explain it to me, I was just sitting there thinking, and when he took a break, I said, "Um, am I going for my chemo today? And he said, oh, no. He said, you've got to go over and meet your doctors and they will get your team together. So Alex and I drove to the PA that day and going into the PA was just an eye-opener, going to the oncology department there. It was just so busy. And for going for ear, neck, throat cancer, there was a lot of, obviously, older people there, ex-smokers. It was just quite daunting. There was a, there just seemed to me there was a lot of sick people there. I felt fine, good, great, didn't feel sick at all, and there was a lot of sick people there at the hospital. But anyway, I, I met a nutritionist. First time I was ever told by my nutritionist, I've got to try and put some weight on. She said, at the time, I think I weighed about 87 or 8 kilos. And she said, look, this is the one time you'll get this free licence where you can... She said, the treatment you're going to go through, she said, you will lose weight. She said, everything will be going against you at the end of your treatment for eating and sustaining weight. You will lose weight. So she said, look, go and have a steak. When you finish your meal, have a bowl of ice cream. Have another bowl of ice cream. That's the stuff. Obviously, be smart, but try and get some extra body mass. So that, and then I met oncologist. I thought it was going to be my radiation oncologist at the time, but then I since got swapped over to a different oncologist and everybody all came in with their notepads and asked me the questions and wanted to have a look up my nose with the camera, just wanting to get as much information about me as they could before Alex explained later, they'll all go and PowerPoint it in a room together and say, this patient, Ben Lyons, what do we think? Here's his, here's what he's got. Here's this, here's that. What action do we think is needed to treat this cancer? I didn't know they did that. Do they actually? Apparently they sit down, all of the oncologists will go through and see the patients that they're looking at, and then they'll basically have a a team meeting and say, talk about how, what do we think about this patient and what do we think needs doing? That makes sense. Of course. That was, and they get Alex and I to make decisions about obviously going private and public with what we were doing with the hospital and all that stuff. That was all very good. And then it would have been a few days later, maybe a week or so later, I got a call from the chemo oncologist and she said, Ben, I've had an opening. She did a chemotherapy at Greenslopes, yep. private hospital. And she asked the question, are you private or public for your treatment? What are you doing? And Alex and I didn't really know at that stage what we wanted to do. We've got private cover, but there's all sorts of out-of-pockety things. We, were, we weren't really weighing up or thinking about what we're going to do quite at the time. But she said, look, if you go private, she said, I can start you your chemo this Monday. And this was on a Thursday, the Thursday before. She said, if you go public for your chemo, she said, you saw the waiting rooms, like the hospital. She said, it you could be weeks. It could be a month. We don't know when yet. Which is so daunting. Absolutely. On yeah. top of what you're already going through. Yeah. And then you've got this time, this matter of time, weighing that up as well. Exactly. And we're of the opinion, I could tell their urgency was we were advised, look, I think we need to get you in if you do have private and let's do this. 
So Alex and I just on the spot made the decision. I can still remember exactly on the Riverside Expressway where I was driving when rang me to have that conversation. And ironically, we were in the car on our way to the Mater to see my urologist about the prostate issue I thought I had as well. I was on my way to a, to do something about something else. Absolute chaos. By oh, the sounds it wasn't a good time. It certainly oh. wasn't good weeks. No, not at all. The oncology thing, sorry, the, seeing the urologist, he asked for an MRI. I went and had that done. The MRI didn't really bring up anything too alarming to him. So he was a little bit like, Ben, look, you're dealing with enough with your neck, with your nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Let's just leave whatever's going on with your prostate for a couple of weeks, more uh, bloods, and see if your readings are going down. It might be an inflammation of the prostate. It could be, he said, let's just wait before we do a biopsy. So I waited a couple of weeks on that and my bloods came down, my PSAs came down. So he said, that's good. Now let's, you've got enough to deal with your neck. Come back and see me in, I think it was six months. So the prostate issue wasn't an issue. It was just a funny irregularity there of some sort. Then I started my chemo at Greenslopes that Monday after the phone call, after the oncology appointment. I did two, two sessions of chemo where I did two drugs on the Monday then the following Monday, I did one drug. Mm -hmm. And then the following Monday, I had no drugs, just fluids. So that was so that was two lots of three weeks of that. Then a two-week break with MRIs and all of the blood tests and everything in between and along the way before Extra I started. Trimmings. Before I started. <laughs> before I started, I did seven weeks. I had 35 sessions of radiation along with three sessions of chemotherapy with the radiation. I had chemotherapy on the Monday of week one, Monday of week four, and the Monday of week seven of my radiation. How good is Green Slopes? It, it was amazing. That was the the day, the Friday before, the Friday after the Thursday phone call, and the day after the Thursday when I went to see the urologist, I went over to Green Slopes and met Sal. And Sal, who yep. um, helped me throughout my stem cell transplant, which is amazing. And she was just, she was fantastic. And Alex and I basically had our little tour of the Cyril Gilbert Cancer Ward there. And it was just, it was so, again, it, thinking about it now, I think as time's gone on, it seems, it seems like five years ago or 10 years ago, it doesn't seem like it's 15 or 16 months ago. It just feels to me now like it's years ago, like a dream I had a year ago or something. It just seems like such a long time ago. But we went over, Alex and I walked through and they just gave us like a little tour of the place and said, when you can come in on Monday, this is what'll happen, this and that. And we sat down and met Sal. I'll never forget, we, she sat myself and two other incoming chemotherapy patients in a little conference room and they hand us packs and folders of this to do and that to do. And when you're going through your chemo and... They still do that. Get with the particular toothbrush to use and what soap to use and mm -hmm. all of those things, just again to try and again make you feel as comfortable as possible when you're going through any discomfort. And there was one gentleman there, I don't know what he was there for. I think we heard something about he had a heart arrhythmia. He was being admitted to the hospital that day. He was a diabetic and he, he was about to start his chemo. So he was obviously sick. There was another young lady there with her partner or a, a man was there with her and she was going in for breast cancer, starting her breast cancer chemotherapy. And Sal looked at me and she pointed at me and she went, oh, now you, you're in for a really rough time. 
And I went, oh, what's so special about me? This poor lady's about to start for breast cancer. That poor guy has got a mountain of issues already and he's about to start his chemo. I was in for a rough ride because she said, what you're, what you're going to expect is the chemo and radiation at the end of my journey. She said, it's going to be really tough. Everything will be going against you being able to eat. Basically, where I was having the radiation of my throat, mouth, neck, and my nasopharynx, they didn't really rule any of the side effects out. I remember from saying I could get headaches because where the radiation was at the base of my brain, basically, I could have eye issues. I could have had side issues. Hearing, I may have needed hearing implants. There was just all sorts of things, along with everything that could be problems you can have with your throat, with your mouth, with everything, any dental problems and all that. That's so scary. It was quite daunting when she said that. You're in for a rough ride. And as we were discussing earlier, I then had the weekend. And it really was like a weekend of, oh my goodness, I felt like I was about to ship off to boarding school again or getting shipped off out of the country to serve for my country or something. I thought Monday morning is, it's time. And the Sunday night, Alex and my two kids and I watched the Aladdin mm. movie with the Will Smith one. And you asked me earlier if I've watched it again since and I haven't, but that's still, that's my memory of starting chemotherapy it was the Sunday night, the night before I started was watching Aladdin with the family and then treatment began. I found it, I'm going to rein it back a little bit, but I find it interesting even the initial part of this conversation when your lymph nodes were up and they were inflamed and you didn't really think anything of it, yet two people within the medical world were both slightly alarmed. Because if you think about how often people's lymph nodes pop up or aren't looking too good, but you were still, you were so chill at that point. Maybe not chill, but I guess yeah. at that point you were how could this happen to me? It, well, it was. I remember a couple of people said, oh, it could be a benign cyst. And like, it was very, they'll throw you a little lifeline there. I was just, but my wife, I've, or since knowing, Alex has educated me a lot with anything to do with your lymphs, if they swell and on one side, not on both sides, and if they're not sore. Obviously, if your body's fighting an infection, your lymph nodes will, they'll swell up and they can be tender. But there wasn't any tenderness, there was no pain, nothing. And again, so I just had that, how could I be sick with this, with what I was about to having to face? How mm. could I be like that when I felt the way I did? And that was one thing Sal said to me when I started my treatment. She said, you're in a very good place because you've got good base, baseline health. She said, you're feeling strong, you're feeling healthy. The symptoms and side effects hadn't got so far that I was feeling sick or I was having any, any problems or anything to start my treatment. You're quite young as well. You had your age behind you, whereas like maybe if it had happened in 20 or 30 years, it would have been a different story. 45 on the knocker, so it You're was... a little um, baby. What was that period like in terms of your life? The six weeks of chemo, then two, so an eight-week session of chemo and a break, 15 weeks basically from start of chemo to the last day of radiation. What was that time like for you? It was... It was... It was strange. It Good, very good friends of ours gave me like a you count down for Christmas and you peel back the days of December to get to Christmas Day and open. They actually gave me this massive big parcel and each day 
I'd, it was labelled 35 down to down to dot, and I'd peel back a wrapper for my radiation of this present every day. And in in between every layer of the wrapper was like a little, there was a chocolate of some sort there. There was a little caramello bear or something <laughs> like that. But it was they all that they the medical people that advised me were spot on, as far as they said this will start to happen at this stage and you'll start to feel like this and. They were spot on all the way through. It's towards the end of a radiation. The radiation seven weeks went faster. They went really quickly. Like I, I didn't expect, I thought every day would have dragged on, but it was very Groundhog Day for the 35 sessions. It was a lot of the same, the smell of that radiation machine, I'll never forget. Did feel progressively worse as I went through the seven weeks, which is what I anticipated. But again, I don't know how much of your mind tells you because you should be feeling that way that you are or you do. They kept saying every checkup and every time they were saying, look, you're doing very well, you're you're doing better than we would have thought or expected, but it was still very, it was hard. It got very hard towards the end. Did that take a toll on your mental health during that time or were you more just like, I need to get this done, just trying to keep head above water? Well, I think ever since that first day when I met my oncology team, and they all basically said, you're in the right spot. The PA, for what you've got, your nasopharyngeal carcinoma, they said, this is what we do. They said, you're in the right spot. And they didn't, as they don't ever say, you'll be, they don't mm. ever say, you'll be fine. You'll get, they did say, you'll get through this. They said, this is treatable. And so that, that gave me the confidence to sort of, to not relax a bit, but that was always sitting in the back of my mind that these guys were very good at what they did and they did do it a lot and... They knew exactly where I was going and how I was going to get through it. So I guess I just trusted that side of it was all going to be fine. I just thought, I'm just dealing with this now. I don't want to, I don't want to think about anything else. Alex, my wife, was unbelievable. The kids were great through it. We were quite upfront and honest with them at the start and explained to them what I was doing and what I was going through. And they were very good. They took it on board and they dealt with it, probably in their own way too. We had a lot of good friends and family that were super supportive and helped. My best mate dropped over containers of soup and special brownies he'd made for me and all yep. that stuff. We had another awesome family that they kept dropping around meals and little care packages and even a bottle of wine with some oranges off their tree from their yep. backyard and all of that stuff as well. Because I was probably, I didn't know how to deal with people with cancer before. I didn't know how to talk to them or how to approach them. So I guess I understood a lot of people gave us a lot of space and everything, which was great. So it was good to, I had a lot of time to think and I had a lot of time to myself, but obviously you spend a lot of time thinking about yourself, going through that stuff, thinking, but all you, all I could really do was stay positive and try and be, just think of the task at hand. Like each day was another, every, I think you might've also told me too, Jack, you're like one day at a time. Don't look too far down the line. They said to me all along, don't think about your next chemo in three weeks. Don't think about next week's radiation. Just think about today. Then when you get through today, then you tackle tomorrow. If you've got a scan the next day and blood tests and a doctor's appointment, tackle that in the day. Don't think too much other than what's coming up in the immediate future. Just one hurdle at a time. Baby steps. Exactly. <laughs> Baby steps. I preach that. Absolutely. I know Charlie and Zara, your two kids, and they've grown up obviously around Alex, maybe not necessarily cancer as much, but what was that like explaining that to two? They're not, they're little, but they're not little anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like they're 
15 yeah. and or at the time Charlie would have been 14 and Sarah would have been 11. He would have been, he was 14 when I got my diagnosis and Zara was 11. So it's hard because they're not little kids that don't understand it. They understand it at that age and it can soak in. But they were very good. It was, I don't know, kids are resilient. They can get some bad news and that might upset them. But then 10 minutes later, like when Alex and I delivered the news, so we kept a very close eye on them to make sure they didn't get any funny emotions or feelings about it down the track. But... They were both quite good. We had a chat to them and I think Charlie was outside bowling about an hour after we had a chat and Zara was in a room watching something on a laptop, dancing around and stuff like that in a room. They were took it very well. It was, and even now, Zara asked me, she's like, oh, hey, Dad, have you got your MRI today? How's your MRI? I'm like, good, thanks, Zara. As good as an MRI can be. Like, And she's like, oh, how did it go? What did they say? I said, well, Zara, they don't tell me the results. I'll see the doctor next week. Like, she still asks and they they're very interested and inquisitive about it, but they've, they handled it very well. It wasn't, Alex and I didn't really need to deal. We had both the schools that were going to contacted us and reached out, which was amazing and fantastic. We had regular people from their schools checking in on us, making sure everything was in good. And we obviously let the schools know to keep an eye on the, on Charlie and Zara if they had any funny out of the normal behaviours or anything. Obviously, because your child might be fine at home and happy, and then they might go to school and another child might grab their rubber as a prank and they might lose all of their frustration on that kid. Like there could be, we just didn't know if the kids were going to let go of any emotions in a funny way, but it was good. They, they, were, they, were, they were very good all the way through it. You also, you also don't know how kids are going to react. Mm. to even information that may not necessarily concern themselves. I have a, another one of the people that I've interviewed. She had cancer in grade eight. And the way that kids reacted to her directly having cancer was is really sad. It makes you also think Charlie and Zara could have gone a bad way. But I guess in their way of grasping it and taking it on, I think it's such a testament to you and Alex and how you act with your children on a day-to-day basis and have this positive relationship because a lot of other kids might not understand or could act in a different way, but maybe their positive reaction to it is because of your relationship with the kids. Oh, very much. I think we talk to the kids. We're very open and honest with them and we any problems or anything you want to talk about, we're always open to, to listen to anything you want to say. So we've always had a very good open relationship with the kids about talking to us about problems or anything that's on their mind. So they've been they've always been fantastic with that. It's I think Charlie's school we were informed that of the parents of the students at his school I made number 10 of parents going through a cancer at the time. Oh my god. So it that opened up because again I thought he's an all boys school. Are there other are there going to be boys saying, "Oh, has your dad's has your dad got cancer or something?" You just never know what kids are thinking and what they're going to say. But when we were told by the headmaster of his school that was the case, we went and he said, "And there's two boys at the school going through cancers at the moment." And I just went, "Wow, there's ten parents of the school and two boys currently at the school," and I just went, and that. Not that it gives it any more normality, but it makes you feel a bit more... I felt a bit more, not ordinary, but I thought, well, what am I whinging about? Or why am I getting any special treatment? Or you just have that... There's other people out there too suffering from stuff a lot worse than what I had to go through. But I was just... We are very lucky with the kids and the support we got with the kids. That's crazy to think that there was... 
10 parents and two kids. When I was at, when I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, four people my age had it at the exact same time. All different, I guess, like I was stage four, there was a few other people that had stage one and yada, but it's crazy how much cancer just does whatever the bloody hell it wants and tears through lives like wildfire. Where are you at now in terms of are you in remission or...? Well, I'm basically 14 months, nearly 14... Oh, sorry, I'm about 13 months post-treatment now and I'll be getting quarterly MRIs and oncology appointments for the two years. So until September 24, I'll be on a regular basis getting MRIs and seeing the oncologist. That's good. It's good peace of mind for you. Yeah, very good. It's... They said that. They said because of the where the cancer was, they said we keep a very close eye on you for the two years when you finish. And then I think the three years after after that, I still have six-monthly or maybe yearly MRIs and, and visits. So it's still a fairly... They do keep a good close eye on just where it was and just to make sure that there's nothing... Yeah. So they should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if they don't and you're listening to this, you should probably find a practitioner who does double check and keep up to date with that. I'm not directed at you. I'm just, if anyone's listening, that may be going through something similar that you are. Is, I guess there's this, I don't know if this is a super personal question, but there is this element of remission versus relapsing. And it's something that I went through three or four times and it's something that people go through for the rest of their life. Does that scare you? Uh, on a day-to-day basis? Not so much on a day-to-day basis, but it does still scare me. It's there. It's just something, again, you can't think about. It's like the old saying, you don't ever get you don't get over cancer, you just don't learn how to live with cancer. Like, it's not something that'll ever go away. It's just... And, of course, when I get closer to the MRIs and the doctor's appointments, it's thicker in my thoughts as to... it's all, Like you say, it's always a possibility. It happens, it can happen, it does happen where they're going to deliver bad news or they're going to say they've found something else there or there's something not right. But I just have to, again, be positive and think, well, if they do, obviously I'll be onto it nice and early because it's only been three months since I've had my last scan or last appointment. So if there is anything there that needs addressing, it hasn't grown or it's going to be, we're going to be able to get onto it very quickly. It's That's not, good. It's not something that you got to wait and have to deal with something that's gone too far to to treat or anything. One's cancer journey is so different and some of us have this moment where we're like, oh, shit, after it's all happened, it's a bit of a light bulb moment. But do you think cancer has changed your life in terms of how you see things and your perspective on the world and, I guess, your gratitude? Absolutely. I remember the funny period when we're waiting on results and waiting on a diagnosis, little things just driving in the traffic and people cut you off or you always want to swear or yell or the road rage in all of us, it just wasn't there. I just couldn't care less. I just had that, oh, well, he kept, there's bigger things to worry about than that. That has come back. I've got all of that rage back now. <laughs> but it's still little things make me, I look at things differently in a lot of ways. Like I don't, Alex and I talk about it all the time with, with just where you want to be in life and w- what you want to achieve with with happiness, basically. Not from a financial point of view or not from ticking all the boxes of, of 
done this and we own that. All of those things, great if they can tick them off while you're being happy in your other life's pursuits. But just being happy in where we're at is what is what we're striving for and what I think we're achieving at the moment. It's just little things don't tick me off as much as they used to. It's it, You can't help but not just feel a little bit more Look that you look at things in a different way. I know I don't sleep like I used to before. A lot of it is from the treatment, from the chemo and the radiation. But so I do find, I do think about stuff. Alex always says, she said, you talk about stuff and you stew on stuff that you can't control and all that stuff a bit. But it's it's hard to explain. But I just think I I do feel and look at things totally different. It just I don't feel the same as what I did before cancer, but I still feel good. I felt good before and I feel good now, but it's different. It's just, it's totally different. You've gone through something that you can't really explain. Like, and I don't, I don't know what I look at differently now, but it is strange. I'm sorry. I I can't really answer that exactly, Jack. Sorry. It's, it's, I can't either. (laughs) I had to pinpoint it. And I think it's also something that will continue to grow. As you're saying, it's completely unique and different and you actually can't pinpoint what it is. You've endured this hardship in order to grow as an individual and that comes out in so many different ways. I don't know. Was I different? Who knows? But in my head, I think I am. And it's a gratitude thing as well. You hold people a little bit closer. Absolutely. It's probably with time, our time at the moment. Not that you ever think, oh, I'm doing things I don't want to do or I don't have time for that person or time for this. Um, we always say it, we don't have enough time in the world to see the people we want to see and the loved ones we want to have time to see. So the people in your life that are sucking the oxygen out of you or are wronging you in any way, I, I want to step back and away from that negative thinking and stuff like that. I'm trying to steer clear of that because, again, the time's just so precious. You just don't know. At 45, I thought I was great in the middle of my life, right? Smack bang in the middle of when I'm going to turn 90 or 100 or something like that. I didn't think at 45, I'd be going through what I was going through. It just, it's something you've got to keep. I always try and stay on top of what I am, what's consuming my thoughts. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of things that you, you over-worry about and over-analyze, but I try to, and the kids do, family plays a huge part in what I think about now. I was about to say that. Just everything from on the weekend, we were at a movie afternoon where the four of us went to the movies and not too many 15-year-old boys and a 12-year-old girl want to go and have a movie session with mum and dad on a Sunday afternoon and our kids do and we had a great afternoon and it was just good fun. How good. And it's just, it's so nice. Like, I'm Alex and I are so blessed to have Charlie and Zara. Like, they're, they're just such wonderful kids. They really are. And I'm, I'm so lucky to have Alex as well because she's just been... She's been so good all through it. She was always, she kept me level-headed. Like she didn't, probably the nursing medical side of her could tell me the honest truth, but also not scare me or worry me. Like she was very good at explaining to me in a way what was going on, but without without making me freak out or without making me think, oh, it's nothing, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm great. It was, she knew how to deliver the news very well. It's probably the best case scenario having a partner as 
a nurse, but also combine that with her being chill as a cucumber. Exactly. And just like a legend and knowing how you work in and out and being, this is what's happening. It's going to be hard. And she knew me enough to say, you'll probably be like this going through that part and you'll be like that. A lot of doctor's appointments, I'd sit in there with her and have her along, like I said, for support, for my emotional and support, but also to listen to the doctors about what they'd say. And sometimes... She'd start, they'd start talking and Alex would then say, oh, like, and they'd say, they'd stop and say, are you medically trained by any chance? And then she'd have to identify herself. And then they'd say, oh, well, I was going to dumb it down a bit so you understood. Now I can talk in my own medical. So I'd just be out of the conversation then. I'd just have to sit there and look at the wall or something because I didn't understand <laughs> what they're talking about. They could talk medically about what was going on. But that was great. Like Alex knew, she listened and knew exactly what they're saying with what, I had to go through and what I had to deal with. It was, it was great. Did you seek any mental health support during that time? No. No. I didn't, no. No. Interesting. I guess to deal with anything mentally like that, again, I just had such good family and friends. I was the same. Just talking to people or, and a lot of messaging, like a lot of texts, again, you couldn't talk. I lost all of my voice at the end, so people would still try and ring me. And I'd have to just go, oh my goodness, I've had seven weeks of radiation on my throat. I can't answer the phone and talk to you right now, sorry. So texting people and just when people could just get back to me that way, that was, it was so special. It was good. Like that, that helped me deal with what I had to process or go through. But I, like I didn't really, my, my mental health stayed very strong all good. the way through it. It was, I never really let myself get down in the dumps with anything because it, it just happened so quickly. Like my symptoms, my diagnosis, my treatment, like I said, change out of four weeks. I was done. I was in there starting my chemo. I didn't have time to get upset about it or we'd have little family chats, which would turn into little teary's and stuff, but they were very, very few and far between. And they were normally victory cries over I've achieved a milestone or I've got over a certain section of where I was going. It was fantastic. The f- my final radiation, Charlie and Alex came with me to the hospital, to the PA for it, and you get to bring your mask home. Obviously, at the end of my treatment, and they said, you can take it home, you can hit it with a hammer, you can run over it with the car. <laughs> Some people upend it and pot plants in it, oh. all of that. Like they said, people spray it and turn it into a bit of art. So we walked out into the car park, and, and Charlie and Alex and I just had a group hug and just teared it out, like on my last radiation and it was really having your 14 year old son there and he was so strong and good all the way through everything it was just great just to have a little have a little hug and a cry with he and Alex it was just it was good and it's and that kept me strong all the way through it I didn't said I didn't feel I, I needed anything else I ask everyone similar questions um because a lot of people that will be listening up maybe struggling or going through a similar thing with a loved one. Did you have any kind of coping mechanisms that you'd go to in terms of, you mentioned like texting friends and talking a lot, but did you do anything? Did you walk or? I did, obviously with when the chemotherapy started, they said exercise or just walking is a fantastic support tool to use during chemotherapy. So Alex and I walked a lot during that six to eight weeks before I started the radiation. I started... I didn't walk as much when I started the radiation because my immune system, I had to be very careful about not being around people. I had zero immunity. I got COVID as well. That's right. Crazy. I had to go get my COVID 
vaccinations in the middle of it all. And Alex said to them, she said, is that, can Ben get that done? They said, yeah, that's fine. Vaccinations are in the middle. Like in the middle of, I went from my vaccination lining up for hours with my mask on social distancing. I went from the vaccination to radiation on that day. To, to have my day session. Jesus. But it was, <laughs> but so I did walk a lot, which was, that was fantastic. And again, just listening to music, I had a lot of songs that would keep popping up on my playlist all the time. And they became my little chemo playlist just for no other reason that they just kept popping up in my track list every time I, we walked. But that was just trying to stay active in your mind, but active in your body is a big help. If you're walking and still trying to keep your mind on, on what you're doing thought was great, which I tried my best to do just because, and again, Sal at, at the Green Slaps gave us great advice and stuff. She said, avoid sleep during the day. Like if you're tired, have a nap, which you did. I got very at the end from the chemo and especially the radiation. She said, but don't sleep all day. Don't just lie in bed all day. And she said, if you get having a sleep during the day, try and have it on the couch or something like that. So you don't getting, you're getting a little nap so you can have a proper night's sleep and things like that. So again, lots of little good advice like that to try and keep myself in sync with the family. Like kids still had school. Alex still had work. I still was basically doing my everyday routine. I had to drive myself to radiation every day and home. It was just, you just got into a bit of a, a bit of a groove, I suppose. And it was that the time really flew by the seven weeks of the radiation. It didn't, it didn't feel like it was dragging. That's good. Thank God. That's but like I said, the, the, the symptoms and side effects were slowly getting worse as I went through. So that was taking, takes up a fair bit of your time just doing that. What, driving home from radio, is that bad? Like, I, I don't know too much about radiation. They said everybody's different. It affects everybody differently. They said you shouldn't feel any effects from the radiation until about week three or four. I remember at the end, I'd done my first week, my first five sessions, Monday to Friday, and when I was getting unclicked from the machine and sitting up and putting my shirt back on, I remember one of the techs at the at the hospital, he said to me, he said, oh, he said, you got much planned for the weekend, mate? And I said, oh, no, I think there was some football on and stuff like that. And he said, he said, mate, just, he said, just keep eating, mate. Have, have a big feed, keep eating. And that's when I was probably at my fattest of any time during the cancer. And I was like, oh, mate, if I eat anymore, I'm going to explode. But he just kept saying, mate, keep the food up, mate, keep eating. Because I did, it, it just slowly dropped off me oh, and then rapidly dropped off me at the end. Wow. You mentioned that prior to going through this, you didn't have much experience or you didn't really know how to talk to people who had cancer or who have been through cancer. Now that you've been through it, is there things that you would encourage people to do and are there things that you would encourage people not to do when finding out about a family member or a friend being diagnosed with cancer? It's, I think, probably giving them space is a good thing, but not giving them too much space so that they feel like you've forgotten about them or you're ignoring it. It's a funny fine line. I found with a lot of people, I thought, oh, gee, I haven't heard from that person for a month or six weeks or something when I was going through treatment. I thought I'd normally hear from them a fair bit, but then they, I didn't feel badly about any of that, but they explained later, they'd say, sorry, mate, we've been thinking of you, just we wanted to give you some space and time. We know it's been hard and all that sort of stuff. So I guess it's, I thought it was hard to get that balance right. And I think a lot of people, and like I said, there was some friends that have had cancer in their family and they were so good at showing 
myself and Alex and the kids the right support and just being there in a way that meant they weren't there and too over the top with me or another friend he texts me all the time he was just like my number one support buddy I guess you'd call it and an amazing memory as far as I'd tell him a week ago that I'd have a doctor's appointment the next day and just in chats go I've got to see the doctor tomorrow and be like oh blah 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 and talking about other things that next day he'd send me a text how'd you go with the doctor today mate and all that sort of stuff and I just think oh wow he's so onto it but it's but finding that right balance with somebody, if somebody's going through it, finding the right balance of giving them the space, but not neglecting them and not over smothering them, but still showing them that you are thinking of them and you are there for them. Again, text messaging is very good and is a good way. Like phone calls are very hard and people don't like, well, I know I didn't like people popping in mm. too much to see me. Because I felt a bit, not embarrassed, but I thought, I know I look like shit and I feel like shit. So I didn't really want to see the look on their faces when they saw me. I was quite, not paranoid about that, but I was mindful of that. If anyone, I'd often make up, make excuses. Some people would say if the, the kids were having a friend over, when the mum or dad would pick them up, Alex would be like, oh, they'll be here in a minute to just go and jump in the shower and I'll lie on our bed and you just let me know when the parents have gone. Only because a little bit of me just just wanted to sort of deal with it in my own way. But having people know that they're there for you uh, and they're supporting you and they're thinking of you is so important and special, but just not being too over the top with it. And there's also, I think it, it would vary, You'd like everyone's cancer journey, exactly yeah. what they want in order to support them will also change. I guess there'll be other people listening to this podcast that will want to know how to help. Well, that's right. As You don't want people giving you that over-the-top sympathy mm. when you're like, just give me a hug, talk to me like you did before. Don't look at me like I'm different or I've changed in any way. Just still talk to me and support me like you did before. But you've also got to know when enough is enough too and just give me a little bit of space and stuff like that. It's it's. How is it for Alex, do you feel? She's been... It would have been very tough. I always said to her, there's no way I could have handled this if it was her mm. or if it was the kids or her mum and dad, brother, sister, my mum and dad, brothers. I'm so glad that it was on me because I could deal with it. And again, a little bit worried, or not worried or scared, but concerned how I'd react to having to deal with an immediate family member going through a cancer like that. Like, because I've never had to deal with it. I wouldn't know what how to act or how to be. She, everything she did was great. We still, we talked, we laughed, we still had the occasional fight when we'd had disagreements. It wasn't like she didn't treat me any differently. She was quite, a lot of things where I thought, oh, I better not do that because of, she'd be like, oh, you can do that. Of course you can. Why not? Like it was, she was good. She was the good kick up the ass every now and again when I needed it. But also she'd sometimes say, oh, no, you probably shouldn't do that. You need to take it a bit easy or something like that. She knew, again, exactly the right thing to say and to do for me. You're lucky. Very. Shout I, out I, I to Alex. <laughs> I can't imagine. And having to do it on your own, I think, would be so much harder. I, due to COVID and all sorts of stuff, I had to do, I think I did about, I think Alex only came to about two or three of my radiation, of my 35 radiation sessions. She missed a couple of my chemo sessions because of the restrictions. So in a way, a lot of the stuff I did was on my own, mm. but all of the treatment, that was the easy part, if that's a funny thing to say. It was, 
going to the hospital, once you get past that, you're going in to have stuff injected into you that's going to poison you and do stuff to you. Like, if you get your head past that, going in that, that was the easy bit. The waiting on diagnosis and waiting on scan results and waiting to hear on what's going on was the worst. And, and then probably... Time. Post-treatment recovery was probably very tough as well. That was tougher than the treatment itself. I totally forgot that you had chemo during COVID. I just didn't put the two and two together and radiation. That would have been isolating in itself. That would have been such a strange time. I remember one day I had chemo and it was my two-drug chemo day and fluids. I'd have my little sachets of chemo, I think, were about... One was 350 and one was 500 mils. Mm -hmm. And then with that, I had about another five litres of fluid. And it was one day I had to wear my mask sitting in the chemo chair. If I wasn't drinking or eating, mask on. And that was seven or eight hours of just sitting there in the chair by myself with a mask on. It was like I was sitting there on a long haul overseas flight, sitting there with my mask on. Feeling all kinds of things going through you. Having to get up and wheel myself and my little trolley to the toilet every 15 minutes. (laughs) It was... Not a nice time. No. I just think it's the mental health pandemic that comes from... that has come from that pandemic is something else and I think people may have at times forgotten about people who are going through surgeries or who were trapped in hospitals as well and it's not nice to think about. But thank God it's out of the way and people can have visitors. I'm glad probably I started when we weren't under any restrictions because at least then I could get to know what I was dealing with first. Mm. Having to go to all the early appointments and the early treatments by myself, I would have felt very isolated if that was the case. If you could pass on any advice or guidance in regards to someone going through a similar thing to yourself or journey, what would that be? Probably just to stay as positive and on track with what you've got to deal with as possible. I know it it is hard and it's daunting and it's is horrible. But a family, a relative said to me once when I was diagnosed at the start, she said, look, Ben, this has happened. And she said, you can't duck it, weave it, go around it. She said, you've got to face it head on. She said, you've got to deal with it and you've got to do it. She said, you'll get through it. But she said, you can't dodge this. So it's just something you have to accept. You've got to accept that it is what it is and, and just believe and believe in the positivity of you, you can get through the, the, the hard stuff. It will get better. There, there will be bad stuff and there'll be hiccups along the way and there'll be all sorts of speed bumps, but you will get, you will get to the other side. And that's, I think that they said that to me at oncology at the start, they said it will be, it'll be hell. You'll go, you'll go to a really bad place, but you'll come out the other side. They said, you will get through it but it's just going to be as hard as hell to get there, which it was. And it's was, and I don't know, you think about it at the time, I thought it was just going to be awful and horrible. And then like that, it was going to be better. And they just, I didn't anticipate the long recovery that would come after. And just, it's just an ongoing slow, like exactly what you say, baby steps one day at a time. I thought that was my treatment and going through, that was the little one day at a time baby steps, but it's everything on onwards and after that is the same you can't you can't rush through any of that stuff but it's j- just to be and trust trust in your family and friends and and be 
Your doctors. Yeah, your doctors. Like mm. they're, they're, they're wonderfully supportive. The people that, that are treating you are fantastic people that I couldn't have asked for anything better as far as how good they were to help and support us through from the nurses at Cyril Gilbert to the techs at the radiation at the PA, the girls, the admin girls that sit behind the count, the allied care I had and all it's just the, the therapists and stuff and then the nutritionists I had afterwards. They're all just so good and just know their stuff. And if you just listen to them and follow as best as you can to do what they're telling you to do, and that's all you can, I think that's all you can do. It's, it's, it's a rough ride and journey, but you will get there. It's just something you need to believe that you will be better and you will get through it. So it's, I think that's all I did. I just kept thinking when I felt bad and horrible, I kept thinking about when I felt good and I felt myself and I think I'll get back to, I'll get back to that. I'll get there. I've just got to, as I've learned, I can't rush it. I've just got to slowly get back there and it'll just let time, let time heal what I was going through patience as well. Absolutely. It's easy. It's huge. I was very fortunate that I could just put my life work, that side of things on hold because I did need the time and I did need to just be really patient with not trying to push myself back to doing anything I, was, I wasn't ready for. I did wind up in emergency. I don't know. Did you, did we tell you this? I ended no. up, I think I was... Oh, let me guess. I think I was, not, not let me guess, let me think. <laughs> I think I was about three or four weeks into my radiation, so right in the middle. And I said to Charlie, I'd play a bit of front yard cricket with him, which I felt good enough to do. I still felt quite weak and not right. But I played a bit of cricket with him. And then after I just felt really hot. And I thought, Sal had already given me the info about the thermometer and taking your temperature every single day. And 36, anything, 37, anything's great. 38, emergency, hospital, get there straight away. She said, this is no joke. She said, the one thing I want to be very serious about is keeping regular reports on your, on taking your own temperature. And if it's 38, don't take some Panadol, aspirin, sleep it off and go to bed. She said, you won't wake up. She said, go to the emergency department or hospital straight away. So I was playing cricket with Charlie. <clears throat> We finished and I thought, gee, I feel really hot and warm. And I took my temperature and I was fine. I was in the 36s or 37. And then about 15 or 20 minutes later, Alex was about to race out the door and go to work. I thought, I'm still really hot and I feel really hot in my neck and forehead and really flushed. I took my temperature again. I was 38.1. And I said to Alex, I went, and the thermometer makes a funny alert beep when you go over 38 and... She went, oh, no, she said, you need to come with me to work. You need to come to the hospital. We had to just drop the kids with our neighbour, our wonderful neighbour. She she took the kids and Alex took me to work where I needed to, they needed to test, I needed to get a blood test straight away so that they could just see what they were dealing with there because I had no immune system. And sitting in an emergency department in the middle of COVID with mm. no immune system, going through chemotherapy and radiation wasn't the place I wanted to be. But that was, anyway, that that ended up at a good story. I just had to wait and it wasn't anything bad. And Too much cricket. Sorry, exactly. <laughs> After that, I said, sorry, but I'm not going to be able to play cricket with you for a few days. And But I don't know what that was, but it was just, that was a little scare that I didn't really want or need. But again, that was a sign of just take it easy. Don't try and push a simple bit of front yard cricket with my son 
wasn't what I was ready for. I just had to do nothing and just follow advice of everybody and just relax and take it easy. I actually fainted like eight hours after my stem cell transplant and cracked my head open. I should have been resting when I wasn't. What a dickhead. Anyways, <laughs> look, I'm going to wrap things up, Benny boy, but thank you so much for coming in. And if people do want to chat to Ben, I can hook you up. So I'd be more than willing to talk to people and listen to people about anything, not necessarily about, could be talking about the football or the <laughs> cricket or the golf or not sport or whatever, but just, just if people need, I, I said it to Alex when I was going through treatment, I said, I'd happily give some of my time back to volunteer just to talk to people at the hospital if there was anything there I could do to try and help people. You know when I'd go back there, post things, you can see the worried look on people's faces when they're there. And I thought, I know exactly where they're at. And how they're feeling. Exactly. Like I'd been there. And I thought, <laughs> when you're sitting there and you might be there waiting for your results or you're going in for a scan or you're about to have your first radiation session, like the nerves and the anxiety, I get it and I know... I've been there. It's And like we said, it, it, people deal with it in their own way and they're all different and everybody's different, but it's still nice to know. Ben, my dear, thank you so much for sharing your story. I appreciate you and I know that your family are incredibly proud of you and so are your friends. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks, Jack. I'll see you Bye. in five minutes. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialize in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you.